Please be seated. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. This morning as we continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, we will be considering Hebrews chapter 8. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon him once again and ask for his help to understand, to believe, and to obey his word. So please pray with me. Our Father, we do ask now that as we come before your word, you, in, you would incline us to your word and not towards selfish gain. That you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things in your law. That you would unite our hearts to fear your name alone. And that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old. Is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. God has made and given many good gifts. To his people. Indeed, everything that God makes and gives is good. However, good gifts can become bad or faulty, useless or ineffective when they are misused. Isn't it the case that when 
products don't work the way we think they're supposed to work, that the reason is usually user error. Sometimes the product may be faulty, but more often than not, it is the user who is faulty. A few months ago, I, I noticed in our house that we were not getting any hot water. So I went downstairs to check out the water heater, not because I know anything about water heaters, but just wanted to see, okay, is there something wrong here with the water heater and we're not getting any hot water? Well, lo and behold, I discovered that when a week earlier we had had someone come to work on our furnace, he had unplugged our water heater to plug in a power tool and he did not replug our water heater in. So I plugged it in. That is the first and only time I've ever fixed a problem at our house. And I boasted to all of my friends, guys, I, I fixed our water heater. And they said, what did you do? I said, that's not important. You just need to know I fixed it. The problem was not with the water heater. The problem was that someone had unplugged it. When it comes to God's gifts, the fault never lies with the product. It's always with the user. So, when does something good become faulty? Well, first, it may be that you are trying to use a product to do what it was not designed to do. A clock is excellent for telling time. It is not very useful for lighting your house. So, if you try to light your clock like we do my wife's scented candles, it is not going to create nice dim lighting and a pleasant smell. It is just going to destroy the clock. Second, something can become faulty if it is meant to be temporary and you use it like it is meant to be permanent. For example, a few years back, there was a part on our dishwasher that Causes the water to drain out of it and it wasn't working. So we called someone in uh, to fix it since the problem was not just needing to plug it in. And when they came to fix it, they said, you need to replace this part. I don't have it, so I'm going to have to order it. But I have this temporary part that should do the trick for a little while while you're waiting. Now that temporary part was very helpful, but it would not have been helpful if we didn't order the permanent part. Eventually, it would have given out. Now, third, something can become faulty when it is outdated. Smartphones and computers often need to be upgraded as software improves. If you never update them, they become slow and less effective. As technology advances, old systems become obsolete as they are intended to give way to better versions. They're good for a time, but now there's something better. These are helpful categories to have in mind when you consider how the New Testament often speaks about the Old Covenant, usually referring, as it does here in Hebrews 8, to the Mosaic Covenant. For more often than not, the New Testament authors speak of the Old Covenant in negative terms. And so you might be tempted to think, oh, in the New Testament, they thought Moses, the law, all of those administrations, those were bad. 
But Paul is clear that the old covenant had glory, as he says in 2 Corinthians 3. He's clear that the law is good, as he says in 1 Timothy 1.8. As long as you understand that there is a new covenant with more glory, and that the law is only good if you use it lawfully, meaning you use it for what it was designed for. For it was given to reveal sin, condemn sin, and point sinners to salvation. But the problem in the New Testament is that some were treating it as if it was given to save you from your sin. It was likewise given to be a temporary fix, but there were those in the apostolic age who were using it as if it was a permanent fix. And furthermore, it was given with the understanding that it was intended to give way to a better covenant, but some were treating it as if it was the final and best administration of the covenant of grace. This, I believe, is part of what the author of Hebrews is trying to correct and guard against in this section of the letter. The Hebrews were in danger of forsaking faith in Christ and of living in light of the new covenant and returning to their old life under the old covenant. So the author is trying to stress that Jesus has enacted a better ministry for salvation because his ministry operates within a better unbreakable covenant. So in chapter 7, as we heard two weeks ago, Jesus is a better high priest than any of those Old Testament priests. And now he introduces the idea, which he's going to explain in greater detail in chapters 9 and 10, that Jesus' ministry is therefore better because the new covenant is better than the old. So chapter 8 is, is really an introduction to this idea that he's going to spell out in chapters 9 and 10. But the key verse of introduction here is verse 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So that's what I'm going to unpack this morning, first considering that Jesus enacts a better ministry, and then that this ministry operates within a better, unbreakable covenant. So my first point is then that the ministry of Jesus is better because it deals with the eternal substance of salvation, not the temporary shadow of salvation. At the beginning of chapter 8, the author helpfully summarizes what he has been saying in chapter 7. It's as if he knows that all this talk about Melchizedek and priests and, and Abraham might cause his readers to get a little lost in the weeds. So at the beginning of chapter 8, he says, all right, here's, here's my main point. He's argued that while the old covenant priests were mortal, they were weak, they were ineffective, there is now a high priest who is eternal, who is excellent, and who is effective. And the main point is, guys, we have this high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not 
man. The good news for believers is that we have a better high priest than any other priest who has ever been. Christian, you have a high priest who is eternal, who is excellent, and who is effective. Namely, Jesus Christ. And his saving ministry is better than anything that ever was, is, or will be. Including the good ministry of Moses under the old covenant administration. And one Reason is because Jesus is not ministering here on earth. He is ministering in heaven. In the very presence of God. That's the point of the first six verses. Here's the argument which will become clear in chapter 9. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, you read that God commands Moses to build a tabernacle. This big, elaborate tent that preceded the temple. They would worship in the tabernacle, offer sacrifices. This is where the Holy of Holies was that signified the presence of God. But Moses was to build this tabernacle and establish this sacrificial system for worship... As a copy and shadow of something greater. Of a higher and future reality. So the tabernacle with the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant. They were intended to signify God's sanctuary and presence. But they were not where God actually dwelt. Remember what Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. He says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So one of the premises of Hebrews 8 is that there is a real throne and sanctuary that God has made in heaven. And this is where he dwells. What Moses made was a copy intended to point to this already existing heavenly reality. So we read in verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And there... Our author is quoting from Exodus 25, verse 40. So in other words, the tabernacle and the priestly ministry, including all of the sacrifices and offerings, were copies and shadows of what was true in heaven, where God really dwelt, where true pure worship really took place, and where departed saints really stood cleansed and without condemnation before God. The tabernacle and ceremonial law pointed to a current reality in heaven as well as to a future reality on earth that began when Jesus came to accomplish his saving work and which will become final when he comes again and completes the new heavens and new earth. 
For you'll notice when you read Revelation 21 that the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth. And so there is no more distinction between heaven and earth. And the worship of heaven and earth are now one and the same. So the old covenant system was pointing to a current reality in heaven and a future reality on earth. As one scholar notes... The earthly realities of the tabernacle are copied concrete projections of previously existing heavenly realities. The tabernacle did not just point to the future, it also pointed to heaven itself. So think of, think of it this way, and no analogy is, is perfect, but here's what I've got. Imagine that one day in the United States, we decided just because we don't like other countries having nicer, more impressive things than us, that we're going to build our very own Eiffel Tower. So a teacher to, to show her students what is going to be taking place brings to, brings to school a scaled model of the Eiffel Tower. She says, this is what is currently in, in France. And this is what we're going to build here in the United States. Now, the model is useful, but it's just a model. It helps the students understand a current reality somewhere else, as well as anticipate a future reality where they are. But it's not the real thing, and it's not actually building the real thing. Similarly, the author of Hebrews is saying that the tabernacle and priestly ministry un, under the old covenant were good and useful to reveal a heavenly and future reality of salvation, worship, and dwelling with God. But they were just copies. They weren't the real thing. And it was not actually creating this reality. It was simply pointing to it. So to have the model of the Eiffel Tower is not to actually be at the Eiffel Tower. To live under the old covenant was not to be in heaven, nor was it to actually be saved from sin and brought to God. So just as you should set aside your model when you actually stand before the real Eiffel Tower... You should not keep setting up Levitical priests and offering sacrifices when Christ has come and enacted a better ministry. For God's purpose and work was not intended to terminate in these earthly copies and shadows, but they were intended to make God's invisible purpose visible and intelligible while God's people waited for the real thing. And that reality came with Jesus. Jesus was not playing with models and shadows. He entered into the real sanctuary. He sits now in the very presence of God. He's not a priest on earth dealing with the law and shadow of salvation. His ministry is therefore better than the Levitical ministry, just like real money is better than monopoly money, like a real car is better than a model car, or like a real body is better than the shadow of a body. Jesus' ministry is better because he has entered the real presence of God and he has provided the eternal substance of salvation, not a shadow. My second yet related point is that Jesus' ministry is better 
because it operates within a new, unbreakable covenant administration that comes with better promises. Here again, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now skip down to verse 13, which reads, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now a covenant is an official agreement between parties that establishes clear obligations and offers the promise of great reward. In other words, it is both a personal relationship and a legal contract. You might even say it's a relationship that is defined and protected by this contract. So the closest analogy today would be marriage. Marriage is an intimate, personal relationship that is defined and protected by clear legal obligations that hold out real blessing. So a covenant is a binding relationship that includes blessings and obligations. So as you read your Bible, you find three overarching covenants. There is the covenant of redemption or the council of peace that was made in eternity past between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they planned and promised what they would create and then what they would redeem. Then there is the covenant of works made with Adam and all of his posterity in the Garden of Eden. And finally, there is the covenant of grace that is made with Christ and with all of God's elect in Christ, which is first promised in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of sending a son who would defeat the serpent and redeem God's people and then is accomplished over time. So the rest of the Bible is really just telling the story of how God progressively revealed and accomplished this covenant of grace through various administrations, including God's covenant with Noah and all of creation, with Abraham and his offspring, with Moses and the nation of Israel, with David and his household, and ultimately culminating in the promise of a new covenant. Each covenant administration was distinct and unique. But it was like a, a puzzle piece. Uh, each puzzle piece is clearly defined. It, it stands on its own. But it's not meant to stay as its own. It is meant to fit together to build something bigger. So in this way, all of these covenant administrations fit together to reveal the full picture of salvation under the covenant of grace. Now it's also important to understand that all of the previous covenant administrations with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they are all moving towards and finding their fulfillment in the new covenant. In Hebrews 8, the author is specifically speaking of the Mosaic covenant when he talks about the old or first covenant. 
Even more specifically, he's referring to the ceremonial aspects of the law with the priesthood, the purifications, and the sacrifices. His point in Hebrews 8 is not that the Mosaic Covenant was bad or flawed in the sense of failing to do what it was supposed to do. When he says it wasn't faultless and that God finds fault with it, what he means is that it was not intended to be the final administration of the covenant of grace. It was not designed to save God's people from their sins. It could not perfect as we've seen in chapter 7 because that wasn't its function. It was designed to be temporary. To preserve God's people as it pointed them to their true Savior, sacrifice, and salvation to come. It becomes obsolete, therefore, when that great Savior, sacrifice, and salvation finally comes. For example, when I was in 8th grade, the school that I went to sold its, its previous building and it was now going to build a, a, a new facility. Well, when you drove by the field where this new facility was going to be built for a while, all you saw was a sign that said something like future location of Lansing Christian School. Now, that was helpful. People would know this is where Lansing Christian is now going to be. But when the new facility was actually built, they didn't keep the sign there. It doesn't have a function anymore. When you go to a movie theater or, or a concert and you set your coat in a chair to save the seat for your friend, you, you don't leave it there when your friend comes. You remove the placeholder because the one's there now. You don't need a placeholder or sign anymore. In the same way, when Christ came and inaugurated the new covenant, you don't need the sign and placeholder of the old covenant. The reality it was pointing to and preparing for had come. That's part of the author's argument. But furthermore, his argument is that the new covenant is way better than the old. Yes, there is one covenant of grace that God revealed and enacted through various administrations. And the substance of that covenant was always the same. It was essentially the promise, I will be your God, you will be my people. But even though the covenants were substantially united, they weren't equal, they were always moving toward the fulfillment and greater effectiveness in the new covenant. So even though we see significant continuity between the old and the new, it's one of the reasons we baptize the believers of children, we see significant continuity. Even though we see this continuity, we don't want to lose sight that the new is really better than the old. And the promises really are better in the sense that the new covenant brings all of God's promises to their ultimate fulfillment. So it would be foolish to keep operating under the old system when you have the better system. Again, I think of when I was in eighth grade. During that year, while we were waiting for the, the new facility to be built, I had to go to school in portables. They set up just a bunch of portables, like little mobile homes where all of the classes were. And so even in the winter, you had to walk from portable to portable outside. And our gym and our cafeteria was just a pole barn that they, they built. Now the next year, 
We got to go to school in the new building that had really nice classrooms and a gym and a real cafeteria. It would have been really strange for you to pull into the parking lot with this new building and see everyone still using the portables and the pole barn. Doesn't make much sense. And so, the author is arguing, arguing here, why would you keep operating under the old covenant when you now have the new, which has better promises? What are those better promises? Well, the author tells us by quoting from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah was a prophet who prophesied during Judah's darkest hour in the years leading up to and including the exile by Babylon. And during these decades, God's people began to fear that God's covenant had failed. For the Davidic king had been taken away to Babylon. The people had lost the promised land. The temple was destroyed and it felt like God was no longer their God. So in Psalm 89, the psalmist even laments, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. So the first 25 chapters of Jeremiah are just dealing with this judgment and exile. But in chapters 30 through 33, Jeremiah offers comfort and hope to God's people. Yes, they have broken God's covenant, but God promises that he will establish a new unbreakable covenant. Now you need to understand two things. First, when the prophet speaks of breaking the covenant, the language doesn't mean they ended God's covenant. It means the people violated the obligations of the covenant. It's the same as when we talk about breaking the law. When you break the law, you're not ending or annihilating the law. It's still in effect and enforced. You've just violated the stipulations. In this way, Israel violated the covenant by their sin, but they did not end the covenant with their sin. So second, you need to understand that when God speaks of a new covenant, he doesn't mean something brand new that is unrelated to the old. In fact, when the author translates Jeremiah 31 here in, in Hebrews 8, and he writes it out in Greek, he could have used two different Greek words to translate new one of those words would mean brand new. The other means a new iteration of something previously in place. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our author chooses the second word for new. And this is why Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant that is not like the covenant that I have made with their fathers. Not meaning... This is just totally unrelated, but there's something better. And one of the ways that it is better is the new covenant is unbreakable. See, he says, for in the old covenant, they did not continue in my covenant, meaning they keep breaking it. They keep violating its stipulations, but the new covenant's not going to be like that. This is the primary way it is Unlike the old, it is unbreakable. Why? Because it is enacted on better promises. So what are those promises? We see three of them in Jeremiah 31. 
And at this point, I'm just going to merely introduce these better promises to you because we're going to get into it more in chapters 9 and 10. But the first better promise is in verse 10. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Remember, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, it's written down on tablets of stone. But the new covenant is going to be written on human minds and hearts. What does that mean? Well, it means that the old covenant told you how you had to live in relationship with God. But it didn't give you the power to actually do it. It could tell you fly, but it didn't give you wings. The new covenant, on the other hand, actually includes the transformational power for obedience. The holy law of God would actually shape his people's minds and hearts because God would effectively transform them. Earlier in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately sick. It's deceitful above all things. But now he says, God's actually going to write the truth of his law upon your heart. In Ezekiel 36, again speaking of the new covenant, God goes even further to say, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. You're going to have clean, new, obedience-loving hearts. So the new covenant still includes the law. It just adds the power to obey the law. And this is because God promises to give his Holy Spirit to his people. Again in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Do you see the difference with, with the old covenant? They're just breaking it all the time. And God says, I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to make you do what I tell you to do. So God promises to give his Holy Spirit to write his holy law upon the hearts of his people. Therefore, they will now be able to keep it instead of breaking it. That's the promise of the new covenant. Now, that is not to say that God's people in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit. Of course, there were those who had the law written on their hearts, who had the Holy Spirit. But in the new covenant, this is going to be more widespread. And there is a greater experience and reality because of the historical outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So the new covenant is better because it promises the power to keep the covenant. It's unbreakable in this sense. Now, of course, you need to remember the already not yet component of these promises. In sending Christ, God began this work. He's inaugurated this new covenant, but he will not complete it until Christ returns. So we have the first fruits of this promise, but not the full experience of it yet. So don't read this and think that if you still sin at times, you don't have the Holy Spirit. He's not saying you are perfect yet, but he's saying you are new, you have a new power, and that perfecting process has begun. So Christian, you do not despair of your sin in the sense of thinking it makes you not a Christian, but you also don't despair of sin thinking, I can't beat this. 
Do not become hopeless in your fight with sin. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is far more powerful than your sin. The second better promise is in verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now the point here is that with the coming of Christ and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's people will have a clearer knowledge of God and a more intimate experience of God. Now, this is not to say that Christians no longer need teachers and preachers. I'm not resigning after this sermon. Paul is clear in Ephesians 4 that teachers and preachers are still necessary and good gifts from God. We don't all understand the Bible to the same degree. However, unlike in the Old Covenant, God's revelation is now complete in Christ and the Holy Scriptures. And it's not just limited to prophets, priests, and kings. In the Old Covenant, there was constantly prophets having to come and tell you what the Lord said. You don't need to wait for Sunday to know what God has said to you. You have the full access to the full revelation of God in your Bibles that you can read any time. So you come on Sundays for me to help you understand what it means, but not so that you can hear it for the first time. All of God's people can read God's word and all of God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit. So every Christian had God's clear and complete word and spirit. They all know, therefore, truly and experientially, I don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you do. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit to the same degree that I do. You can know God as I know God. The third better promise is that sin will be dealt with once and for all. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In the Old Covenant, the constant sacrifices were constant reminders of sin. They were not the removal of sin. In the new covenant, God will remember sin no more because he will remove it once and for all. In the old covenant, you had a foreshadow of forgiveness. In the new, you have the substance of forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to say more now because that's really chapters 9 and 10. But in summary then, the new covenant is better and unbreakable because it has been enacted on the better promises of the transformational power for obedience, the full, final, and freely accessible revelation of God, and the full forgiveness of sins. Why on earth would you go back to the old covenant when you have the new? Which brings me to my closing application. To believers... And unbelievers I like, alike, I say to you, not just the ones I like, but all of you. <laughs> God has given you one way of salvation. And that way is Jesus Christ, who is the inaugurator, the guarantor, and the mediator of a new and better covenant. Now, if you are not a believer, if you are still seeking salvation... Let me assure you, you will not find it anywhere else. You can seek until you die. It is only in Jesus Christ. 
You cannot find salvation in your morality. You cannot find it in earthly accomplishments. You cannot find it in vague spirituality and crystals. You cannot find it in any other religion. You cannot find it in scientific discovery. You cannot find it in psychological observations. You cannot find it in enthroning your own feelings and desires in your autonomy and authenticity. You cannot find it in your job. You cannot find it in marriage. You cannot find it in raising children. You cannot even find it in Christian behavior. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no better way, so stop searching and settle upon Jesus. Salvation is not all about the journey. Salvation is about finding the right destination. Jesus is that destination. And to believers... I remind you that God has indeed given you many good gifts. He's given you his word, prayer, sacraments, the church, friends, family, material provision, countless other things. But he's only given you one gift for salvation. Again, that is Jesus Christ. So do not be tempted to leave the solid rock of Christ for anything else that God may have given you. For no matter what God has given you, he has not given you anything better than Jesus. So don't love or trust in anything other than or above Christ. So often as we battle with sin, we may be tempted to think, well, the fact that I'm still struggling, there's got to be more to salvation, right? There's got to be some kind of secret pill or something other than what I'm hearing every week on Sunday morning and evening. There isn't. You must just keep repenting and believing in the one true gospel. You don't replace Christ. You don't add to Christ. You don't move beyond Christ. And as you grow in your understanding of the Bible and of Christian theology, which I hope you will, do not let anything other than Christ crucified become the organizing principle and theme of your life and faith. Keep the main thing the main thing. No matter what theological inquiries excite you, no matter what good gifts delight you, do not let anything other than God's grace and Christ crucified rule and dictate your mind and heart. All doctrine and every gift are meant to be roads that lead you to a greater love for and faith in Jesus. Jesus is the object and he is the goal of your faith. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And truly there is no better way, greater truth, or more blessed life than that which is in Jesus. Because he is the better minister in the holy places. Who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Everything else is obsolete. It is growing old and it is ready to vanish away. So look to the one who will remain. Rest in the covenant that cannot be broken. And rejoice that you may really know and obey God. Who will remove all of your sins from reality and from memory.
Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we all can be tempted, distracted, discouraged, and think there has to be something else or better. Been pressing upon our minds and our hearts that it doesn't get any better than Christ. It doesn't get any better than the cross and the resurrection. It doesn't get any better than the new covenant. Help us to live in light of this new covenant. Help us to teach our children to live in light of this new covenant. Help us to go out into our society and teach the world to live in light of this new covenant. We need your grace and strength to do these things. And so we call upon you once again. Fill us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Empower us to do what you have sent us in the world to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.